chapter 4, inflation, but more interestingly, deflation. Quote, By a continuous process of inflation, government can confiscate secretly and unobserved an important part of the wealth of their citizens. Close quotes. John Maynard Keynes. Second quote. Quote, Inflation is taxation without legislation. Close quotes. Milton Friedman. Third quotation. Quote, the first panacea for a mismanaged nation is inflation of the currency. The second is war. Both bring a temporary prosperity. Both bring a permanent ruin. But both are the refuge of political and economic opportunists. Close quotes. Ernest Hemingway. Inflation, as we've mentioned before, is one of the primary reasons for many economic problems. What matters is not how much of a number you have of a certain thing, but its relative value. Inflation, therefore, is very simple. The inflation rate is merely the representation of more money, but not capital, being added into the economy. This doesn't have to be pure cash, like notes, but money in the broadest sense of the term, such as debt. Even though it might not look like money, huge debt loads in the modern economy add huge amounts of digital money into the economy and add them into the money supply. This money is concentrated into certain areas where loans are often taken out, such as the housing market. This extra money in the form of credit eventually filters down too much of the economy, inflating everything and anything over the years. However, wages might not rise to compensate. Therefore, we get an inflation rate. Many countries, regions and government statistics all proclaim to tell us the exact inflation rate in their regions. But if you believe these government statistics, you're an idiot. Think about how much the price of beer has gone up in a pub. Or maybe there's a better example from your own life that shows how much prices have risen whilst the average wage has not risen to compensate. The price of a beer, a can of Coke, or a Big Mac could all be used as indicators to some extent of inflation. One of the better, more informal forms of inflation measures in Britain are these little wonderful chocolate bars called Freddos. British chocolatiers are among the best in the world. There's a reason Charlie and the Chocolate Factory was written by a Brit about a Brit. Cadbury's, one of the companies that novel is based off, makes a little chocolate bar called a Freddo. It has a bright green frog on the front of the packaging, and it is dirt cheap to buy, making Freddos loved by kids. Freddos have gone up by as much as 250% 
over the past 30 years, whilst wages have not gone up by anywhere near that amount. This is inflation at work. The purchasing power of the pound has gone down in relation to what you can buy. This would be fine if wages had gone up, but the lack of stable currency has, since 1971, seen a decoupling of money supply and the value of labour. We'll be talking more about some of this in a future episode on the financialisations of the economy. But for now, simply remember that simply increasing the supply of a currency does not solve any problems if wages don't rise too. In order to keep genuine inflation down, Cadbury's would have to produce more Freddos by using less labour. It would need efficiency gains in order to do this, through automation and innovation. If we lived with a deflationary currency, Cadbury's would be better incentivized to produce ever more for ever less in order to keep fixed costs down and to outproduce and beat the deflationary gains in the currency. If the supply is decreasing because there's less money chasing more things, you have a clear incentive to produce only what this scarce money wants and to make the price point as enticing as possible. This incentive still exists in an inflationary currency, just not to the same level. We've become so used to an inflationary currency that many have no idea what a more stable monetary era would actually look like. I often wonder why we accept living with such inflation. But I think it's that deflation has only really occurred in the West during depressions. This has led economists such as Friedrich Hayek to argue deflation during a depression is a bad thing as it promotes hoarding and not investment, as general confidence in the economy is bad. However, if a deflationary currency was seen as so secure and huge numbers were confident in the currency itself, I think a general depressionary era would be unlikely to occur as people would have more confidence in the currency and the nature of the macroeconomic outlook would be less important. Inflation promotes short-termism, which might be a good thing to encourage during a depression, but not generally. Deflationary currencies would promote investment with longer-term returns. Confidence would no longer be rested on the stability of banks and the financial system, which are increasingly overwrought in the modern economy. Previous deflationary currencies, such as monetary metals, were perhaps the most secure currency we've ever had against inflation. But they weren't truly deflationary currencies, as the Spanish found out. When the Spanish Empire imported huge amounts of gold and silver they traded and plundered from the New World, Spain, the richest economy in Europe, quickly hit a constantly inflationary spiral, 
damaging the economy and long-term investment that arguably it still hasn't truly recovered from. Gold and silver rushes have occurred throughout time and throughout regions. Monetary metals, therefore, are mostly a deflationary currency with periods of rapid inflation as more gold is mined or plundered. So what kind of economic changes would a deflationary currency like Bitcoin bring to the wider economy? And secondly, why is Bitcoin deflationary at all? So what kind of changes would a deflationary currency like Bitcoin bring to the economy? Well, Bitcoin has a fixed supply of 21 million Bitcoins, meaning it has a fixed and limited amount. This can only be produced via mining, a force out of the control of the government. This mining is probably misnamed. What it means is just computer processors working out a series of ever-increasingly complex mathematical sums. Every four years, the rewards for working out these mathematical problems halves. So, when Bitcoin first started running, your average computer could be used to solve these mathematical problems. Solving them would give you a 50 Bitcoin return. Each halving process results in the halving of these rewards. It went from 25, then to 12.5, and now to a reward of 6.25 Bitcoins to successfully solve what is called a block. But what are these problems you have to solve? Well, the mathematical problems that would run on any Bitcoin mining program is that you solve problems that can help run the entire Bitcoin network. These mines are the ones that processes the informations that let you send and receive Bitcoins and ensures they cannot be manipulated as there's millions of these miners all over the world all competing to solve the same problems. The current reward for mining is 6.25 Bitcoin. But as the problems become ever harder, the processing power needed to solve them will also increase. Meaning today you need huge rigs to stand a chance of successfully processing a block. The rewards received will continue downwards until about 2140, by which time these mines might be so immense we can't even comprehend. Whole Dyson spheres using energy to power Bitcoin mining because the value of the network will be so huge. After 21 million Bitcoins have been released into the system, no more can be mined. The only rewards will be for processing payments. It is this nature of its limited supply which is what people are starting to notice. The supply is already so strict for the demand of Bitcoin 
that its value has massively deflated, pushing up the value of the entire network. Furthermore, as more and more interest is put into Bitcoin, its deflationary nature will be noted by more and more, creating a type of self-fulfilling prophecy as its value continues to increase, and therefore increasing its value even more as more and more people start to realise. Bitcoin will be seen as a true deflationary asset, like great art and unique memorabilia, but also a truly unique medium of exchange, and one that works. This is why Bitcoin is not a bubble. It is simply becoming more and more deflationary. Increasingly little of it is being mined, meaning supply decreases can be factored into its overall value. The fact Bitcoin's number just continues to go up to some makes it look like a tulip or dot-com bubble. But this is simply wrong. It's the fact that Bitcoin does almost work like a reinforcing prophecy that logically makes people recoil from its very fundamentals. But once you realise this slight twist in logic to understand how it works, and you get your head around the entire system, it becomes a lot more simple to understand. For people who understand this need of the twist in logic to just get Bitcoin, it's increasingly frustrating when other people can't see the same thing. I can perfectly understand why Bitcoin is just so perfect, and yet struggle to understand how others can't see the same as me. I do wonder if this is because of the modernity of Bitcoin, making it still feel like a novelty. Bitcoin has been, and is still seen by some, as a novelty. But the 10,000 Bitcoin spent in 2010 on a pizza is the most obvious example of Bitcoin's fundamental deflationary nature. Early on in Bitcoin's history, even those who would mine it and even knew about Bitcoin, would send it freely to friends and others in the community. Even those who developed Bitcoin and took an interest in it, and perhaps knew of its potential, still centre on Bitcoins like it was a novelty. For others, Bitcoin was a purely technological and libertarian interest. Yet, what a cross-section of these groups started to note, was that Bitcoin just carried on going upwards in value. It was this novelty factor of an internet currency that first interested people and helped it gain attention. But this hid its true potential. Bitcoin has been written off time and time again as a novelty. And sure, it might have been a novelty, but when does that novelty value start to wear off? After 12 years, I think something has proved itself as more than a novelty. Thankfully, there's an intelligent grassroots community interest in Bitcoin, proving what I always hoped, that people are not as dumb as financial journalists. People all over the world have noticed that if they put money in Bitcoin and just leave it for a few years, then the price of it and the value of their Bitcoin goes up and up and up. 
Many get-rich-quick schemes have been designed around this inherent fundamental quality of Bitcoin. But for the most intelligent, and still today, anybody who has held onto Bitcoin for any part of its history is still in profit. For some, it took three years from the 2017 peak to late 2020 to see those returns. But for the rest, it was a far quicker process. Simply holding £3,000 in April 2019 or March 2020 would have netted you huge returns in mere months as Bitcoin continued to deflate. Bitcoin is now in a near perpetual deflationary era as its perceived value goes up and up, while supply massively comes down and down. As it deflates, it will carry on doing so until people start thinking it's hit a near-term peak and begin to sell in more quantities. This is the free market in action. A move from novelty to revolution is not unknown in technological history. Some might even say it's a feature. Greeks noted that steam could be used to power things many millennia before Thomas Newcomen and James Watt. But for the Greeks, steam was a novelty. The Chinese too used gunpowder but for firework displays, while the Europeans developed gunpowder for war. While magnetic properties that were used as novelty guiding systems for ornamental wooden ducks in China were transformed into highly accurate marine compasses in Europe, helping to fight the Crusades and then helped to lead Europe's age of exploration. The internet was seen as some by novelty too, until more and more features were added and it wasn't long before we all lived in an internet age. Recorded sound was a novelty when Edison first started to experiment with it. Displays of the original phonograph drew large crowds, with people able to hear recordings of others speaking for the first time. But Edison struggled to find a way to make this speaking machine actually useful. It took the Edison's patent to run out so others could experiment with the technology for this novelty to finally find a use as recorded music boomed. Why wouldn't Bitcoin go through the same process of novelty to revolution? Everything should be open for innovation. It's unlikely central banks were going to destroy their own currency overnight and move to a Bitcoin standard, after the Bank of England's governor and a few board members had thought up the idea overnight over a pint and decided to try it out. Monetary innovation would have to come from the people, not the government. Somebody could have gone down the Edison route and tried to start a company promoting Bitcoin's use and trying to compete with fiat that way. This might have worked, but Bitcoin's origins are far more in line of how 21st century technology actually works.
a group of online hobbyists were far more likely to be interested in this type of technology than big business. Google, Apple, IBM or whomever aren't really going to have an interest in something like Bitcoin. Not only because of regulation or privacy concerns, but it's not something you really think about doing as a company. The idea that Google would own your money would sound like a brave new world. When Facebook tried to introduce its own currency, Libra, even after cryptocurrencies were already a big thing, it saw much pushback and little appetite from consumers. Previous industrial revolutions were powered by the lone genius working in a shed. But now it's powered by small online decentralised communities enabled and empowered by the internet who start technological revolutions. Few true revolutions come from the establishment and the elites. They are more concerned about staying in power than in undermining power structures. Bitcoin's ascent to the tip of the monetary revolution spear is slowly breaking a fiat inflationary bubble. This process may be slower and more drawn out than many Bitcoin enthusiasts think it will be. Or it might be far quicker. But it will be unlikely to have a clear moment of overtaking government money. The revolution will be slow, like the Industrial Revolution. Not instantaneous and chaotic, like the French Revolution. What will a true deflationary currency mean for the economy? Well, we don't really know, to be honest, because inflation has been pretty much standard for the entirety of human history. Deflation has only come about in modern times during depressions, making people believe deflation is bad. What I think Bitcoin will allow for is a currency and store of value that can be deflationary and freely used in a confident economy. People will spend less on frivolous things, but spend more on true worthwhile investments. People are already starting to sell their bitcoins to buy cars and watches. But once bitcoin integrates into the economy, this strange effect will take place where a newly wealthy generation of Bitcoin first adopters gain rapid wealth. And these people will not be lacking in confidence that may be lost elsewhere in the economy. Bitcoiners will be used to frugal yet productive long-term investments, not living the high life. They will buy highly personalised and highly valuable personal consumer products that are designed to last and will be provably theirs through the blockchain technology. For those who invested early and have patience and foresight, as well as probably already good incomes if they were able to manage not to sell their holdings all the time the price rocketed, they will be the people in line for a huge wealth transfer as the economy reorients itself towards a more productive long-term macro outlook. This will continue the reinforcing prophecy of Bitcoin's value growth 
as the amount of capital investment put into Bitcoin will grow and grow in value as the Bitcoin network supports more and more capital, which in turn will allow more people to put money into more productive enterprises and continue to invest their profits back into the network. Some of this new Bitcoin wealth will be spent on consumption, but I think it will largely be invested. A Bitcoin price that rises from £20,000 to £200,000 and then millions and then tens of millions will just be sitting there waiting to be spent. Once large amounts of collateral are easy to borrow against Bitcoin, this money stops looking nice on a screen and results in huge economic clout. Many will only have one thing in mind. Are there now better investments than Bitcoin? The decentralised nature of Bitcoin means this process of individualistic investors will happen all across the world. Investment will largely be in local areas. Local areas that have never seen these types of patient, rational actors with a huge sum of wealth and looking for long-term productive investments. The exact types of investments the current financial system has failed to engender. Good money will drive out bad money. A strong time money preference will become the new economic standard. We are used to capital inflating in value, so we think relatively quick spending is a good idea. This doesn't support investments that may take 10 to 15 years, but proves highly lucrative. These investments provide the best long-term investments, not pumping up tech stocks so they can eventually grow into a monopoly. When Britain led the world leading up to the first industrial revolution, it had money much sounder than today because it was based on monetary metals. Britons back then could use accumulated capital over a long period and invest it. With the help of a small loan, investment was easy in the Britain of the 1750s for those who already had wealth. This resulted in private capital changing the economy as the great canals crisscrossed Britain, funded by these investors looking for a quick and easy return. Then it resulted in investments in factories, and then steam, and then railways. All were funded by private finance and productive bank loaning. Today, despite huge wealth, that could be created in long-term rational investments in all manner of infrastructure and large-scale investments in future technologies. Private capital has continued to push money into unprofitable, unimaginative internet and app-based startups, which thus far are yet en masse to result in huge profits. At the same time, the infrastructure of most Western countries is decades old. A monetary revolution combined with a deflationary currency will help 
aid the rebirth of modern strong capitalist economies across the world. Not only will the system be fairer, it will encourage a more productive use of capital in a capitalist system. Those companies that can't keep up with the rest will drastically and quickly fall away. Easy access to credit will dry up as governments won't have control of the money printers and won't be able to bail out the banks every 10 years. Only productive loans will once again be available. Those who are ahead will have to continue to innovate and compete to keep ahead. This lack of sound money in the economy goes so deep and is so impactful that you can say the decades of malaise of great art and music has been down to a monetary system which promotes consumerism and short-termism, leading to shock acts rather than genuine talent. Everything from Cardi B to the horrors of Damien Hirst's art can be blamed on a consumerist society which has its base in a lack of sound money. Government money has distorted the benefits of long-term investment in the youngest, who rely on wages to survive. If wages don't pay well, you struggle to support the money and therefore time investment that's needed to go into creating great art and to support prosperous financial ecosystems. It's therefore no surprise the musicians and actors of today are always from moneyed backgrounds, as they're the only ones who can afford to put the time and energy into following their dreams. The Beatles would never have been able to do what they do now, simply because of the lack of wealth amongst the youngest generation, who now can't afford to support a bubbling and vibrant music scene like the Liverpool of that period. Money has not reflected where it needs to go. Government money means the youngest have been screwed out of a fair wage for the entirety of their lives. There is no surprise our culture is filled with the untalented and uneducated when they have largely been dissuaded from putting valuable time into these long-term pursuits, as rewards over decades for being good have continued to diminish. Hence, culture has largely been driven by corporations valuing compliance over talent. The lone musical genius is rare. The Beatles, Elvis, Led Zeppelin, even Louis Armstrong, Miles Davis or Frank Sinatra all came out of an era that paid fairer money for labour and created strong local cultural ecosystems funded by these strong wages. A strong monetary ecosystem with more artists being able to survive creates a culture of competition in talent, innovation and creativity, which results in the end in our aesthetic pleasure. Returning somewhat to a deflationary currency could have these massive impacts in society that we don't quite understand have 
even been caused by a lack of sound money. Fair money for fair labour is crucial for all manner of things. But for culture, arts, to science and politics, it all benefits with a stronger currency. If the currency is deflationary, in some ways, that might be better. So, thanks for listening to the episode. If you liked it, feel free to give a star rating or leave a comment. If you want to support my other podcast, it's called 100 Greatest Inventions. In the next episode, we're going to start looking at financialization, globalization, and industrialization. <laughs>